Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning, Oak City Church. Thanks for joining us. It is actually, for me, Friday. uh, It's Friday morning right now, and I'm recording this in anticipation that we will be watching it on Sunday morning and hopefully uh, watching some snow out our windows or maybe watching it later because we're sledding, but probably not doing that. Maybe with some freezing rain and some ice, which would be more exciting than nothing, but possibly staring out the side of the window wondering if it's ever going to rain because that is North Carolina weather. But I'm really glad uh, that we have an online option and that we can do this and there's not as much stress as there used to be about our snow days. And so, Lord willing, we've got some good weather this morning. I, uh, before I get started with my message, I did want to uh, revisit something I said last uh, week at the end of my message is really a challenge uh, to, to all of us. And the three words that I used were engage, belong, and advance. And engage, the message was about the mission of the church and just re-engaging for 2022 and let's get moving. And engage was really engage your relationship uh, with Jesus. And now a lot of you have been completely engaged in your relationship with Jesus, but some of you have not been engaged in your relationship with Jesus. Like you've gotten out of some habits Um, You have gotten into some ruts, maybe. Um, You have hit a spiritual bottom in some ways, and you might be sitting on your spiritual bottom. And so this engage is really your pastor telling you to get off your spiritual butt and get moving um, in your relationship with God because you need it. Uh, That's what you're made for. And that starts uh, maybe on your bottom with some time reading your Bible and spending some time with the Lord and pouring out your heart to God just about where you are with him and, um, and, and probably some confession and some repentance, but just re-engaging. And that is inevitably going to involve your church because he made you for that. And so making it a habit to re-engage the, the rhythms of the church. I read this quote this week. Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. And that is why our gatherings together means so much in the routine of it, and we need that. So engage and then belong. Who knows what's really going on with you right now? Like who knows what's really going on in your heart, in your life? Are you close enough to anybody where you can pour that out? You need that proximity and other people need you. One of the byproducts of COVID has been isolation, and that is biblically a tool of the devil. He wants us to be alone and not gathered together. And so you need to be close enough so that you can know others and that you can be known by others. It's not good for man to be alone, and that's why he's made us a part of the body of Christ in the church. And so belong, and then finally advance. Um, We're made to play a part in making things better. And so are we doing that? Uh, We do that naturally with our own agenda, I feel like. We probably have set goals for work or we've set goals for family or finances or whatever, but are we playing our part in advancing um, God's agenda? So engage, belong, advance. Those are not things that you're going to do overnight or in a week or two, um, but over months. And so we're going to be talking about those as we move forward. Now, we are jumping back into a sermon series that we were in for the fall and we stopped at the beginning of December so we could um, move into an Advent series. But now we're going back into the series in the book of uh, 1 Peter. And for this message, usually when I do a message, 
I get into the passage and read the commentaries and figure out what God's saying and where it applies to us and how to say it. And then you think about, okay, how do I introduce a message? Because they tell you a few things about introductions and messages. And one that I remember, I'll remember this forever, is that without tension, there's no attention. Without tension, there's no attention. A preacher wrote that for sure, you know, but it's true that you pay attention when there is some tension and you want to resolve that. Every TV show, movie, everything we watch um, follows that. And another one is that this is a guy that wrote a book. It's probably like 150, 200 years ago. He founded the University of Illinois and the book was on teaching. And he said, learning occurs when you have solved a problem that somebody has. And so you got to demonstrate how your teaching is going to solve their problem. And the Bible lends itself to that because he teaches us things that we need to know. Well, sometimes when you're doing a message, you realize that the passage brings all the tension that you need. It just brings it by itself. And today is one of those times. So here's our passage. You could open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. See what I mean? There's some tension there. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but you'll let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Maybe a little bit more tension there. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. A little more attention. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord, you know, and thanks be to God that he gave us his word. And my, if I express a hesitation in my reading of that, it's not because I, I don't agree with it or don't appreciate it. I absolutely do. And maybe more than ever, it's that I, I don't know like where people are coming from, where you're coming from, the experiences, the viewpoints, the biases that we all bring to the passage. And my hesitation is because I know that my uh, time and that my ability to accurately discern and then communicate what God is saying in this passage are both severely limited in this half an hour talk. And so that's my hesitation. So Lord, may what is um, heard be better than what is said, and may you speak uh, louder than I will this morning. Now, I'm going to move through this um, in a pretty straightforward way with th these three questions. What is God asking of wives? What is God asking of husbands? And does this matter today? But I've rephrased that question to be, why does this matter so much today? Because it absolutely matters today. And um, just for a minute here, let me reset this. We're going to a letter, the letter of 1 Peter, and it's Peter's letter, and he writes it to, he says right up front, the elect exiles of the dispersion. And so he's writing to a group of churches, a group of people, and he's saying to them, God is in control, and God knows that you are in a tough spot. He expects that the ways of God will be contrary to the ways of the culture in which we live, and he is preparing us to deal well with the types of tension that we're going to experience in culture and that we're going to experience in these passages. When you become a Christian, when you come to believe that your relationship with God 
is not dependent upon anything that you can do for God. No good works because your problem is much bigger than anything your good works for, can solve because your good work, like your problem is a heart problem that you can't fix. But that your relationship with God is instead based upon the perfect life, the substitutionary death, the power demonstrating resurrection of Jesus. Peter says you instantly become a refuge in the culture around you because you are going to see basic truths about yourself and the world and God differently and you'll respond to them differently. You understand the nature of God differently. You understand um, the nature of yourself and the people around you differently, the nature of your problems differently, and the nature of the solution that's required differently. You speak a different language. You'll embrace different traditions. You'll hold different priorities. And so he's teaching them to live that out in a culture where in some ways we're exactly the same as the people around us, but in other ways we're radically different. That's why we're going through 1 Peter is, is for us as a church to learn these lessons. And so we should expect the tension that this passage brings. In the few weeks before we stopped the series for Advent, we were in a section in particular where he's talking about your relationships with people that that really practical relationships with people believe things differently. And so one of those messages was honor everybody, honor everyone and how you're supposed to treat people. One of them was about subjecting yourself to the ruling authorities, even if they don't believe the same things. And if they treat you wrongly because you believe something different than them, because God can work through that, he can work through your submission to those ungodly authorities. Uh, the last message before we broke off was um, Ken talking about the passage about um, slaves submitting to their masters and if and how that applies to our workplaces today. So it's in context of that, and now he talks about husbands and wives. Now, these three questions, um, what does God expect of wives? What is he asking of husbands? And does it matter? I'm going to switch the order of the first two, and I'm going to start with husbands and then move to wives. I'm also going to import a passage from Ephesians chapter 5 that is really a parallel passage about husbands and wives and marriage, and I think is helpful to expand on and, um, and just to, to add a little bit more to the passages that we're looking at. So what is God asking? What does um, Peter say God is asking of, of husbands? And he starts this passage, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. The word understanding in the Greek is gnosis. You may have heard that before you've been in church for a while. Probably hear that word. It means knowledge. And so he's, another way to translate this is live with your wives according to uh, knowledge. Now, in that culture, I have the feeling, this isn't a radical command in our culture, and it's an expectation, you know, but in that culture, I bet that was a radical command. I bet women's rights weren't anywhere near as advanced as they are in our culture. And so guys were like, wait, what? Um, in our culture, it is an expectation, you know? And so husbands, do you understand your wife? How well do you understand your wife? And wives, how well do you feel understood by your husband? Now, one of the benefits of pre-recording this um, and not being in person or even live streaming is that you could pause this right now and you could have a conversation about those questions in front of your children. You could record that for us and send it back to us because it might be entertaining. It would certainly be helpful. It might be difficult. But husbands, how well do you understand your wives? And wives, do you feel understood by your husband? And the answer to that question is probably sort of, you know, like it's a, it's a joke in sitcoms. It's a societal trope that women are harder to understand than men and that men are really bad at understanding their wives. But it's kind of a joke because it's kind of true, you know. And it's, I mean, husbands, I remember our premarital counseling and um, 
my pastor, our pastor, had us, we were at dinner at a, at a Chili's in Cary that's no longer there. And he turned to Bobby Joe and he said, Bobby Joe, you just have to understand one thing. Men have huge egos. And if you understand that, it'll make everything better. I'm like, I don't have a huge ego, which is just pointing out that I have a huge ego. But, and he was in a sense, right? But like, no, that's not the one thing you need to understand about men. Like, that's just totally not true. And someone this week said, and they, 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 they put out a quote from Oscar Wilde that was, um, Women don't want to be understood, they want to be loved, which in a way is understanding women. So that's both. But like we can be accurately, rightfully considered as confused by all this. Um, what he's saying, husbands, you need to be students of your wives. You know, on a scale of one to 10, how well do you think you understand your wife? And wives, on a scale of one to 10, how well do you feel understood by your husband? Um, this is hard. I'm not great at this, you know. Uh, how much effort do you put into understanding your wife? You know, it, what, is that in the forefront or the back of your mind? Uh, how much effort do you put into understanding what go, what's going on in your wife's heart, in her mind, in her body, in her soul? Uh, how much time do you put into that? How much do you listen to your wife? You know, how much do you ask her questions? How much do you engage this? And on the same scale, are you living with your wife according to that knowledge, in an understanding way, uh, knowing you know, what she likes and what she doesn't, knowing what she's strong at and what she's not. You know? And I think about this, and I think in a lot of ways, I, I do think I understand my wife. In some ways, I think I understand my wife better than she understands herself. And, and I know she understands me in some ways better than I understand myself because we're both human and we have blind spots and we've been together for almost 25 years. And so that would just be a natural thing, you know. But do I, do I live with my wife according to that knowledge? Do I extend to her uh, grace and do I live with her in an understanding way? Now, I think this goes both ways. You know, I think wives should live with their husbands according to knowledge and in an understanding way. Uh, and maybe the command is to men because it comes more naturally for most, for most women. I don't know. Um, he goes on, likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we'll get to the weaker vessel thing in just a minute, but showing honor to the woman since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Again, in that day, just have to imagine that this is a radical command. It goes with some other things in the New Testament that, you know, in Galatians, Paul says there's neither male nor female in Christ. Like those differences are alleviated. And here he's saying there, women and men are co-heirs in the grace of life. This is not news to us, but it might have been news uh, to them. And so husbands are to consider their wives as complete equals. And that may seem to run contrary to the passage, but it really doesn't, you know. He's saying before God, you are co-heirs of the most important thing that you could be co-heirs in. You are equal in the most important aspect of your life, which is your relationship with the Lord. Um, we were reading a book. I'm reading a book with a few guys at church right, right now called The Death of Porn. It's about pornography, but he, talks, he starts by talking about the dignity that men were made for and the dignity that women were made for. And he talks about Genesis a lot in this passage in Genesis. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And how when that was recorded 3,500 years ago, in relation to the competing creation narratives that other cultures had put forth, it was like a bomb going off. And the dignity that the Bible consistently gives 
to women. Now, when, when he says, as a weaker vessel, from everything I've read, from my understanding in the past, he is referring completely to the physical nature of men and women. And so let me, uh, I mean, it is undeniable that on the whole, men are physically stronger than women. Um, for, for all the believe the science stuff that we hear, it seems that this is something we don't want to hear in our culture right now, that men and women are just plain different. And that could not be more obvious on a million levels, but particularly when it comes to, to physicality. You know, you put the best NBA team on the court with the best WNBA team. They're not winning 9 out of 10 times. They're winning 10 out of 10 times because that's a physical game. There's, we don't need to deny that. I mean, that's fine. That's the way that we are. And that's okay. This has been, this is not, I mean, it's more lately, but it's been going on for years. When I was a kid, I can remember watching PBS specials about gender and how the differences between genders were all nurture and they weren't really nature. And thinking, like scratching my head going, I don't know about that. But being a kid and growing up in the, you know, when the Equal Rights Amendment was, they were trying to pass that and it was great. But like, just being sensitive to that, you know? And I haven't lost that sensitivity. I'm sensitive to the things that are going on with gender and gender dysmorphia is a real thing. And if you were experiencing that, man, like that's, I just, that's hard. I mean, that's incredibly difficult. And some people that's um, an experience that is extremely genuine. But I think the way that our culture has handled it is, is dealing with it in a lot of wrong ways and has made it, like more of a deal than it is. There was a study that came out a few years ago and it was put out by a professor at Brown University. And so she's a social scientist that was based, it was all statistics, it was all about data and how gender dysmorphia has always been, a transgender issues have always been like it, a little bit of a thing, but now it's like this much bigger thing and it's much bigger among women than it is among men and that it was bigger within friend groups of women like you'd have a group of, of you know teenage girls and within that group of friends like a bunch of them would have it statistically it didn't work out for the woman that was studying it and she compared it to um what happened with with eating disorders years and years ago and it's still happening but happened when it really emerged as a big problem and called it a social contagion and really what it is is a form of cultural identity um, that people can adopt now she put this paper out within a week brown university had retracted it uh, because it didn't fit the cultural narrative and this is another aspect of believe the science unless the science says something that we don't really want to hear uh, I say all that to say, like, I just, we've taken this too far. What we're doing to deny the differences between men and women is not a healthy thing to do at all. And honestly, I find myself hopeful because we can't deny the undeniable forever. And that pendulum is going to come back and swing in the other direction and, and create an opportunity, um, you know, for the church and for the word of God. I think what this is saying to men is husbands are not to use their physical power to manipulate or control or intimidate their wives. Is this a message that needs to be heard today? You bet it's a message that needs to be heard today. You know, and it extends in a lot of different directions. Um, one of the things about this book, The Death of Porn, and just for transparency's sake, as your pastor, I feel the need to say this. Por pornography was a big struggle for me at a certain point in my life years ago. And then it was less of a struggle. And now it's not a huge struggle. And I think every guy struggles at some level. But I know it could become a big struggle if I'm not paying attention. And that's part of the reason I want to go, book, go through this book with some guys from church and just offer it up. Um, because I know it's a struggle uh, for guys. 
that being said, I love the way the guy, um, it's Ray Ortland, the way he goes through it. Because, and he speaks directly to men and talks about pornography. And he says, do you think these women want to be there? And um, he has some women that have come out of the industry that um, he quotes in his book saying, no woman wants to, to be there. And so Ray's call to guys is stop objectifying women. Uh, you, in a sense, are using your power to put them there and stop it. Stop thinking you're a good guy because the porn you're looking at isn't as bad as some other porn. And he contrasts it with what God does in Genesis, where Adam sees Eve and says, This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken on a man. And the honor that um, he treats his wife with and that, and that a godly man is supposed to treat um, a woman with. Uh, he goes, and to take that further to this Ephesians passage that I want to bring in, um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the picture of a godly husband becomes Christ and the way that he treats the church so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so Christ came from heaven to earth to love his church. He gave up his privileges to love his church. He gave up his status to love his church. He gave up his comfort to love his church. He ultimately sacrificed his life so that his church could be presented to God the Father in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. He never did anything selfish when it came to his relationship with his bride, his church. And so husbands are to prioritize their wives' needs, wants, and desires over their own needs, wants, and desires. You are to use the power that you have to protect and to defend your wife. This is a vision of what a godly husband is. He is sensitive to his wife's feelings and needs, respectful of her person, mindful of his own power, and sacrificial in his leadership. That's what God is asking of a husband. What is he asking of wives? Back to Peter. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then the passage from Ephesians. Uh, wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, I put submit in brackets because in the Greek, it's dependent upon the, the, um, the verse right before it. And, and the, the passage right before it is describing the church, surrendered to the Spirit, but it says, submit therefore one to another, and then says, wives to your husbands. I don't think that takes this command away. It just puts it in context. So wives to your husbands, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So wives are called to let their husbands lead their families. The word uh, submit is a military term, uh, hupatasso. It means to rank yourself under, like it's a choice to rank yourself under. It doesn't imply superiority or inferiority. It implies functionality. I don't know why God does it this way. I don't know why this is how he's decided um, to, to work things. It's not because men are superior to women. It's not because women don't have the capacity to lead. God help our church right now without, uh, at, at any point, without our female leaders. God help my family without my wife's capacity and willingness to lead. I think he does it because organizations that are successful have leadership and structure. It's a little bit hard for us to think of marriage this way. It's hard for me to think of marriage this way. Like, 
I don't think my friendships have structure and leadership, you know, and my marriage is a relationship, a friendship at its core, you know, and I don't think that does. But then I think about marriage and maybe it does, you know, uh, maybe we can grasp this. I heard this week a quote um, about marriage that kind of stunned me. It was by W.H. Auden, who apparently was is a famous American poet. I don't know much about um, poets. I took a poetry class in college, but I got a D. I stopped paying attention then. And he said this, like everything which is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will, any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. There are not many things that in our moment right now are more countercultural than that, but it's true, a healthy marriage that has been built over time with hard work and has survived challenges is a lot more interesting, interesting and productive than a fleeting passion that is based primarily on chemistry that we know is gonna change and may well go away. We need this so badly. I was listening to, uh, it was probably a breakpoint commentary the other day about divorces and it was divorces of pastors and for no traumatic reason. I mean, I understand, there are reasons that I totally understand why people get divorced, but these were just like, I just wanted something new and I just wanted something different. Well, who doesn't want something new and different at some point if you're married for 50, 60, 70 years, you know? And it's a symptom of our culture. But the family and a marriage is so much more important than our feelings. It is a commitment to love beyond your feelings because marriage is worth it. And the goal of marriage is not to make you feel good. The goal of your marriage is to make you more like God because your problem isn't that somebody else can't get their act together. It's that you can't get your act together. And nothing will point that out to you better if you're willing to see it than marriage. And nothing will drive you to the Lord the way that marriage will. And it's going to be hard. And if you get there, you're going to feel better. But you're going to feel better because you are a little bit more like God. And so when it gets difficult, it does require structure and leadership and doing something because someone told you to, not because it feels good. And that's not talking about your husband. It's talking about both of you doing what the Lord tells you to do because you trust him. And I think it's, it, again, organizations thrive with leadership and structure in the workplace. Your workplace has structure. Um, the military has structure. Sports teams have coaches and captains and players that have positions. Orchestras have conductors and they've got, you know, different instruments that have different parts to play and everybody has to play those parts together. And we're thankful for that structure much of the time, you know, but part of us always bristles at that structure. Um, there are moments, we all have moments where we think, I could do a better job at that than whoever's leading me in this moment, you know? And we do that um, because we're not perfect, but we do that because we've never, apart from Christ, we've never seen like great God, we've varying degrees, but like perfect godly leadership. And a lot of times it's been horrible. There's a podcast um, that has been a thing this year in the church world called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's a church out in Seattle that exploded, but then imploded. And it, the podcast is about leadership and just ungodly leadership, you know, imperfect leadership. And it's not that it's one church. It's so popular because it's so many churches, like all churches to a degree, but so much, some, like so many churches that seem to be imploding under ungodly leadership. 
And Jesus told us, like, this is what we're prone to. He said to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, this is the way of the world. They lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. That's to say they domineer over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gives a different vision for leadership, you know, and and we'll all fail in trying to live up to the standard that he gives us there. So why have leaders at all, you know? Well, anarchy is still not a great strategy, and a perfect God can work within and beyond imperfect human leadership. And the picture he gives here in these passages is a husband who sacrificially serves and loves his wife and his family. This is not just do what I told you to leadership. You know, that's bad leadership. There are times when it's going to seem like that, but it, I think that's extremely rare. You know, it's bad leadership and bad leadership comes on a spectrum. Like there's domineering leadership, but then there's completely passive leadership. And that's also bad leadership. I am a collaborative leader to a fault. Um, I have ideas. I like my ideas to varying degrees, and, but much of the time. But I also want to know what your ideas are. And, um, and my problem is getting too many ideas and not being able to pull the trigger. And that's bad leadership. And it has been and can be maddening to the folks that I lead. If we were in here, I might get a few amens on that. To my, and my family and my church have suffered for it, you know. But that we're called, he's given us a picture to aspire to of what it means to what it looks like to lead like Jesus. So that's a picture of the family. Here's another thing he says to wives. So wife is to find her identity in a relationship with Christ. This is kind of the cookies on the bottom shelf and husbands need to find their identity in Christ too. But this is just how the passage goes. Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. This isn't saying don't braid your hair or wear jewelry or wear nice clothes. It's don't let that be the thing that defines you. Like don't let that be your adorning. Don't find your identity and how people respond to your appearance, whether they respond positively or negatively. And in our image obsessed culture, do I even need to talk about how important this is? Like it's everywhere, you know? Beauty in our culture comes with power. And he's saying don't get caught up in that trap. He says the imperishable beauty is a gentle and quiet spirit. And in that, he's saying your external beauty is uh, perishing. I will never forget reading a commentary um, years ago, doing a message on beauty. And I forget who the woman was. The commentary was a little bit older, but she was in her youth, like cover of a magazine, beautiful. And she said, being born beautiful is like being born rich, but knowing that when you die, you will be poor like seeing that wealth go away day by day. And you could tell this lady's relationship with her beauty, or at least the temptation, was to just, just cling to it and to think this is the thing that defines me. And we see that in so many ways in our culture. And he's saying, no, don't get caught up in that. Like true beauty is this gentle and quiet spirit before the Lord. And that's its own minefield. Does that mean men get to be loud? No. There's a parallel passage to this, calling men to be men of prayer. Does that mean women have to be quiet? No, you can be, you can be loud and have a quiet spirit, and you can be quiet and have a loud spirit, can't you? Um, does it imply weakness? No, gentle is not derogatory. Jesus is the one that is described as being gentle and humble of heart. It's, we're all supposed to aspire to it, and there's great strength in gentleness because it requires so much self-restraint. 
And so a woman is called to find her identity in Christ. And then in, and then in this passage, a wife leads, this wife, he, she leads through her submission. And so the context of this, again, in, the, in 1 Peter right there, is, is wives that are married to, to husbands that are not Christians yet. The wife has become a Christian, but that husband isn't a Christian. And so he says, submit to your husband so that by your conduct, you might lead him to Christ. Like, in, submit in this one area so that in the bigger area, you're going to lead him in the direction that he needs to go. Uh, later, it, the, the line, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, that can be translated, do not fear any intimidation. It's an interesting um, comment because in that day, wives would be expected just to worship the gods of their husbands. And so they're worshiping Jesus and being a part of the church in, in some sense, is a little bit rebellious, you know? And so he's telling them to stand strong in that and trust that the Lord is going to work um, in that. And they're not submitting then out of fear or out of gain, but they're submitting because they trust and love um, Jesus. Now, does this matter uh, today? Does this matter today? Yeah, it does. Um, you know, this was written a long time ago, but it's not uh, it's not culturally conditioned. I mean, it's based on the relationship between Christ and his church. And Christ is still the head of his church. And so this is still, as best we understand scripture, like what God calls us to, why does it matter so much today? I mean, for reasons I pointed out, you know, our culture is increasingly confused about the role of gender. Believe the science seems to increasingly believe, I mean, believe that gender doesn't make a difference. And that's just not true. Um, and I don't think healthy. And, you know, I, I think we all have concerns that our kids are being indoctrinated in things that we don't like, either through school or through social media or whatever. And so living this out is more important than, than ever, because you know what is going to indoctrinate your kids more than anything else? Uh, parents, it's your marriage. That's what's going to communicate truth at a level no one understands to your children. Nothing will change the hearts and minds of our children like a healthy or even an unhealthy marriage. And a healthy marriage in our culture is, is evangelism to the world around us and a picture of Christ. Uh, this is another thing. We've never seen this lived out well. This is not a call to go back to the Leva to Beaver 50s, you know, because that wasn't lived out well. There are things that need to be changed that we need to grow into, that we need to, to live out better um, as a culture. There was a I was reading something this week about a woman who is anecdotal about a conversation between her nine-year-old son and her six-year-old daughter about where they were going to go for her son's birthday. And he said, well, I'll let her decide because I want to end the patriarchy in my generation. This kid's nine years old, you know? And so fair enough, there are things about the patriarchy. I don't think everybody means something different with that that need to be changed and um, need to be different. But there are things like just in the, the differences between husbands and wives that, that don't. And our families are in um, you know, like a lot of disorder. And any statistical thing you want to look at will tell you the key to raising healthy children is a stable family. And he's given us, you know, his blueprint for living this out. And our call is to trust him and to do the best we can um, to, to live this out. And then finally, a healthy marriage is a picture of the gospel. This is how Ephesians 5 ends. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. A healthy marriage 
is not a wife submitted to a husband. It's two people surrendered to the Lord, uh, not for their own good, but for his glory um, and not for their own glory, you know, but that the world might know what he is like. And we do that in a marriage through our love for each other, through our commitment to each other, in spite of each other's imperfections, through the forgiveness that we offer each other. We present a picture of what the gospel looks like lived out. And that is what we're called to. Father, I pray for, um, for that you would give us it, at the place that we're at, because we all come at this with different biases and different experiences and different understandings that your word would speak into us, that your spirit would translate it in the places that we need. God, and I pray that we would model um, pictures of healthy marriages, Lord, of, of what you meant for marriage to be, of a picture of Christ that loves his church in a way that's sacrificial, in a way that's committed, in a way that is forgiving, in a way that our culture is increasingly radical, Lord, and that you would get glory through those marriages. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you've given us your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.